1944, Daniel Brathwaite began his quest to ban the children's book Little Black Sambo written by Helen Bannerman from all Toronto schools. It would take him over 10 years to accomplish this. But why and what's so bad about this book? Hi, hello, what is up and welcome or welcome back to Girl You Haven't Heard, the podcast where we discuss black history and true crime from a critical decolonial perspective. This week is Black History Week and we are going to be discussing Danny's journey to ban the Little Black Sambo from all Toronto schools. What is a Sambo? A Sambo is one of the many racist stereotypes and caricatures that Black people are thrown into in Western media, and as the rest of them, they affect all Black people, but this one is specifically targeted at Black men. As all racist media portrayals and categorizations of Black men, it's rooted in racist ideals and is harmful in nature and in practice. The term itself, derived from the Spanish word Zambo, which originated in Latin America and is a term used for a person of mixed Black and Indigenous descent. In 1736, Sambo's grave became the burial site of a young enslaved individual near the village of Sunderland Point in Lancashire, England. The location is significant because Sunderland Port was used as a transport hub for cotton, sugar, and enslaved people to and from the West Indies, America, and Canada. In Western societies and cultures, it is used as a derogatory term for Black people, specifically Black men, and historically, it was used as a substitute for the N-word. This stereotype is used as a justification and defense for enslavement and later racial segregation. It is a racist stereotype created by white folks which portrays Black men as stupid, incompetent, happy-go-lucky, jovial, naive, subservient, happy to be included, happy to be enslaved, and happy to serve as a slave. It's a stereotype, like I mentioned before, which was used to justify slavery, and it insinuates that Black men were happy to be enslaved, they were enthused to be of service, and they wouldn't have it any other way. They wouldn't want to live their lives any other way, which couldn't be further from the truth. But the stereotype was used to say if Black people are happiest when they are enslaved, then who are we to say that they should be free, or how could anyone else have an issue with it? This stereotype insinuates that Black people are lazy, easily scared, inarticulate, they are simple-minded and docile. It makes it seem as if they are perpetually childlike or in a childlike state of mind, which means that they are inherently useless as an adult. By the 1900s, the stereotype was typically attached to older, docile Black men who accepted racism and racial segregation. They didn't really want to rock the boat, they wanted things to stay the same and do what was necessary to keep white people happy, even if it was at the expense of themselves and their own well-being, which is something that was literally beaten into Black folks during the enslavement period. Although the stereotype started as a justification for slavery, as with all racist tropes, it transcended beyond that. It became pervasive in all forms of media, such as music, movies, folk sayings, literature, children's stories and games, postcards, restaurant names and menus, and much more. Not only is the stereotype extremely problematic, but it puts black people in a box while also coddling white folks and comforting white people in their racism. The Sambo Stereotype in Media One of the first times the Sambo character was formally introduced was in Edmund Botsford's story of Sambo and Tony, a dialogue in three parts, which was released in 1808. Sambo is, of course, the happy slave, and he is chastising his buddy Tony because Tony is complaining about being a slave, as I imagine any of us would, saying that their master makes them work too hard. Sambo then replies by telling him he's ungrateful, he has a good home, a good job, food in his belly, and clothes on his back, so what are you complaining for? Tony says, yeah, he does all that, but like he also works us so hard. Sambo then tells him that you're wicked and ungrateful, and Tony responds with what you call wicked Sambo. 
From this line, the what you talking about Willis phrase from the 1980s sitcom Different Strokes originated. What you talking about Willis? <laughs> this stereotype was also justified in Bishop Whipple's Southern Diary, which he wrote from 1834 to 1844. And this was a very popular release. For what reason? I have no idea. But within this, he said that they are a happy race of beings. And if you did not know it, you would never imagine they were slaves. The loud laugh, the clear dancing eye, the cheerful race shows that in this sad world of sin and sorrow, they know very few, insinuating that they have a better life than everybody else without sin because they are kept safe by white people by being enslaved. The woman was too stunned to speak. In minstrel shows, the Sambo stereotype was extremely popular and well-loved, but rose to popularity in the 1830s. Minstrel shows, for those of you who don't know, it just involves white folks dressing up as racist caricatures of black people. They would participate in blackface by using burnt cork and red lipstick, overdrawing and overlining their lips, just poorly mimicking black features all around. Within these shows, they would mock black folks singing, dancing, and the way that they spoke, poorly using AAVE for the entertainment of white people. And white people ate it up every single time. They loved it. And they also quickly catapulted the white people who participated in minstrel shows into high levels of fame, success. They became extremely rich. And these shows would tour internationally and they would have full sold out audiences at every single show. Eventually, these white men would hire black people to play the minstrels and make the money without actually having to do the work themselves. This was often the only way black folks were able to break into the entertainment stream and industry. This now mirrors how black people are forced into these stereotypical and racist roles in order to break into the scene as a sort of twisted evil initiation prior to taking the roles that they want and showing who they really are within acting and outside of acting. These shows not only upheld these stereotypes, but they were the first real mainstream look into how black people acted. And so it set the foundation for how black people would be perceived and treated on an individual and general social level as well. Minstrelsy is when these stereotypes began to become ingrained in the media portrayal of black people, specifically targeted at black men. These minstrels were created with the intention of not only mocking black people, but they were also trying to cement black folks' place in society. They were not only meant to know their place, but they were to remain in it. And if they step out of line, it was up to white people to put them back in that place. And these shows created that dynamic. The Sambo stereotype, like I mentioned before, it still continues and it still goes on. And an example of this, which is quite popular, is actually in Star Wars, episode one, The Phantom Menace. Character Jar Jar Binks was introduced and it was clear through his method of speech and general demeanor that the character was Sambo inspired or it was basically just a modernization of the Sambo stereotype. Like they didn't try to hide it at all. They hit it, tried to hide it a little bit by making him a frog or like this outer space character, but that literally means nothing because you can tell what they're trying to do. You almost got us killed. Are you brainless? I speak. The ability to speak does not make you intelligent. Now get out of here. No, no, Mr. Stay. Mr. Caught Jadron Pinks. Mr. Your humble servant. That won't be necessary. Oh, but it is. It is demanded by the gods, it is. This character was also played by a black man. So all it did was reinforce that the negative portrayal, the negative connotation that goes along with the Sambo stereotype and takes it right back to minstrelsy days where they eventually would hire black people to play the minstrels in order to hide the clear racism behind the character. Because if it's racist, why would a black person take it? But if they're given no other opportunity, then what are they supposed to do? White folks use this as an opportunity to manipulate black folks who wanted to enter the entertainment sphere. If they didn't play these roles, they wouldn't get a chance to show their talent and do what they loved, which is the case with actor Ahmed Best, 
who plays character Jar Jar Binks. He said in an interview that if he didn't take the role, another black person would have, and that's 100% true. I don't blame him at all for taking this character. It's a bigger issue with society that this was a character in the first place. The backlash he got for voicing this character from the black community is unreal, and he would later go public about how the backlash very negatively affected his mental health. After this public backlash started to occur, the show did nothing to protect him. They were just kind of like, you're on your own. So very much reenacting that minstrel dynamic that we discussed earlier. Current negative impacts of the stereotype. Black men are continually stereotyped into the Sambo character within media and in real life. It allows non-black people to see black men as ignorant and happy-go-lucky during hard times, implying that they are happy to serve, and also there's that expectation then that they are to be of service whenever anyone else wants them to. And when they don't do so, they are then mistreated for failing to uphold this racist ideal which is hidden under the guise of other people's expectations. It reinforces the idea that black men are subservient, they are second class, and they are beneath white people, but more specifically white men. They are meant to be under white men's rule and they aren't happy, nor will they be successful in life if things happen any other way. If black men refuse to take roles in entertainment based on this trope, they are less likely to break into the entertainment industry or they will continue to be typecast despite having a wide array of roles that they could play or they will be shunned and called out by the black community. So it's a lose, lose, lose situation. All of these things negatively impact black people in more ways than one. So now that you know about this stereotype, you should pay attention how often it shows up in the media that you consume on a regular basis. The Little Black Sambo The story of Little Black Sambo was published by Helen Bannerman in 1899. The book centers around a little black boy in India, and then after it got popular, Helen actually changed the setting to be a U.S. plantation in the South. It outlines the tale of a heroic boy who faces danger head-on, courageously, outwitting tigers after losing his clothes to them, and then in the end, he is rewarded with pancakes. It's a stupid story, if we're being 100% honest, but it was only popular because it was racist. It is built upon a variety of racist and stereotypical notions about black people, making it extremely harmful to black folks, but especially the black children who the book was targeted towards. The more popular the book became, the more racist the images within became as well, embodying more minstrel-like characteristics such as the bright, full red lips, extremely dark skin, white eyes and teeth, a broad nose, and a wide smile. Danny Brathwaite said that the little black Sambo was deeply rooted and entrenched into society. It was loved by parents, educators, librarians, and the mass media. Y'all make me sick! Y'all make me... Helen also published a variety of racist literature over her years of writing, which I wish she never did, but these books include The Little Black Mingo, Little Black Quasha, and Little Black Quiba. On February 6th, 1935, Little Black Sambo was made into an animated film.
But watch out for that bad old tiger. That old tiger sure do like dark meat. The film itself is racist and problematic from start to finish. About Daniel Brathwaite. Danny Brathwaite was born in Sydney, Nova Scotia in 1919 to social activist parents. So it literally was running through his blood. His hero was Marcus Garvey, who is a radical Jamaican political leader and advocate of Pan-Africanism and the founder of the Universal Negro Improvement Association. Danny grew up in Toronto, moving there with his family in 1926, where he was extremely active in the black community. He took on leadership roles in the United Negro Improvement Association's Youth Wing and the Young Men's Negro Association, both in the 1930s. He publicly and very actively went against being drafted into the army in 1942 because his voluntary service to the Air Force was refused because he was black and so he was briefly thrown into jail because of this so essentially he wanted to be a part of the air force and canada was like mm, you're black we're not going to do that but what we will do is draft you into the army so you can die on the front lines and danny was like absolutely not i'm not doing that so they threw him in jail after he was freed from jail he continued to be active in his community and he also married his wife june and went on to have two kids jane and paul he worked as a member of a group which petitioned the Ontario government to permit black nurses to be trained and employed in Ontario hospitals as they were unable to at the time. So basically what would happen is they would get their formal education here, but then when it came to their practicum and things of that nature, they would then have to move to different parts of America because Canadians would not let them help them in the healthcare industry. They refused. And instead of the Ontario government working to eradicate this kind of racism, they're just like, you know what? Okay, we'll just send you to America where people don't really want you there either, but we want you less here. So his first attempt to ban Little Black Sambo started in 1944. He then founded the Canadian Negro newspaper and the Toronto Negro Citizenship Committee in 1950. He also went on to found the Library of Black People's Literature in 1962. So just an incredible man who did a lot throughout his life for the advancement of black people in Canada, but specifically in the Toronto, Ontario area. Banning the Little Black Sambo. On December 2nd, 1955, Paul Brathwaite, a six-year-old boy who attended Essex Street Public School, came home extremely frustrated. During an after-school fundraising event, the school decided to show the color version of the story of Little Black Sambo. And Paul had been taunted using the term directly after the film had been shown, showing the direct implication that this film, this story has on black folks, specifically black children. Paul's father was pissed, okay? He was super mad. And it had brought him back to his own experiences growing up in Toronto in which a white boy had grabbed him by the back of his neck, rubbed his hands in his hair, and taunted him saying, hello, Sambo. Daniel himself was previously bullied along the same lines of his son. And so he was extremely confused and frustrated and angry at the fact that the school had shown the film and continued to encourage discriminatory attitude amongst their students. Jane recalls that after this happened, her father was extremely upset. The family's local school trustee, Edna Ryerson, she was very empathetic to the family's experiences and she shared their outrage. She told Danny to write a letter of protest and send it to the Toronto Board of Education. He did so, and so Edna spoke up and advocated very heavily in support of Danny when his letter and another letter written by John White was discussed at a board meeting on December 15, 1955. Edna stated that the book or the story in any other format portrayed Black people as people with little dignity or culture, so it was extremely offensive and she didn't understand why it was still around, like, get rid of it. What's not clicking? But her colleagues, they didn't care that much, literally at all, because they didn't like her. 
she was a communist. And now that is still a big no-no, but back then it was even more of a no-no. They were very quick to dismiss her because of that. And because they were racist, but that too. Mr. Feimster, the superintendent of the public school at that time, came forward in defense of the Essex Street Public School principal, saying that when the principal realized that it would offend Mr. Rathwaite, he called him, apologized, and said it shouldn't happen again. That's suspicious. To me, that's a very weird statement. They're making it seem as if Paul is the only one who had an issue with this film, the stereotype, and it being shown to their children. They also didn't explicitly say that it wouldn't happen again, just that it shouldn't, as to cover themselves if the school or another teacher decided to show it or read the book. Edna also thought that this statement was some BS, so she insisted that a formal recommendation be written and brought forth for the board's management committee. She was successful in making sure that this happened, so Edna was showing what it was to be a real ally, okay? She wasn't just talking about it, she was being about it. This report was written by Cece Goldring, the director of education, and was tabled on January 6th, 1956. It was super dismissive of Annie's concerns and also Edna's. The report said that it felt unwise to ban from the public schools a book which has such wide appeal for children. It also said that the book cannot be said to be discriminatory in that it's a children's fantasy book which portrays a little Negro boy who has a great adventure in the jungle from which he emerges successfully. So they were basically like, it paints you in a good light. Mm, there's nothing to be mad about, you don't have anything to be mad about. And me as a white person, I'm able to tell you what's discriminatory and what's not. So white folks, after the report was released, they were very much on the side of the report and black folks seemed to be adamantly against it for reasons that are very clear. The newspaper articles at this time were on the side of the report as well for the most part. They made it clear that they did not believe there was any legitimacy to Danny's opinions and perspectives. They also dismissed Danny's claims and Edna's claims of racial intolerance and racism as communist jargon that was meant to do nothing than further the divide. This very much gave like, why are you talking about race? Like you're the racist by talking about it. Energy in which people just dismiss you. However, the report and general public's opinion did not dissuade Danny. He had a long history of community activism in Toronto, as I mentioned before. He was able to successfully lean on his extensive network of community support within the black community in Toronto when the initial report went against him and invalidated the black experience in totality. He went on to gather letters of support from a lot of people confirming that the book was what they said, quote, an affront to human dignity. One of the most important letters of support came from the well-loved and well-respected sociologist and activist Daniel G. Hill. Everyone else's letters for the most part seem to be very personalized and very just like their own opinions, their own experiences, which is not a bad thing. I think that was very good. But the people in power would use this as a reason to kind of dismiss their concerns. Be like, oh, well, that's just your opinion. Like, that's just what you think. That's just how you feel. So it doesn't matter. But Daniel Hill's letter was extremely scholarly in nature and had extensive supporting evidence and citations. So there was no denying the basic facts that the book and the term itself are extremely racist, prejudicial, and problematic. The standout parts of his letter to me were the term black sambo and sambo are considered by black people on the North American continent to be of despicable, derogatory, and in the same category of darky, the n-word, and pickaninny. The terms black sambo and sambo have been and are still used by other children as a way of addressing and teasing black children, which is a problem. He outlined it as being extremely dangerous and making black kids feel as if they don't belong. He rounded out his letter by stating that it is important for educators to take on the responsibility of instilling respect 
respect for dignity of all humans, regardless of nationality, race, or religion. Adding that stories like the little black Sambo can only take away from that effort, and so it must be banned. Now, not all black people were supportive of this movement. In fact, many were openly and publicly against it, which is just a reminder that all skin folk ain't kin folk, ladies and gentlemen. The Canadian Negro Women's Association, the Home Service Association, and the British Methodist Epicostal Church declined to participate, and the pastor of the African Methodist Epicostal Church told Danny to go home and forget that he was Black. Which, what a statement to make to someone who has done so much advocacy on behalf of Black folks. Like, imagine being that ignorant and ridiculous. Daniel and his supporters were not listening to this backlash. They went on anyways to form the Committee of Negro Parents, which put together a brief which Danny himself presented to the Board of Education on February 2nd, 1956. Part of which stated that when a children hears the expression Sambo and sees the illustrations which portray it, it is not difficult to imagine the impact of this young mind. Adding that when this is done within the school environment, under the supervision of his teachers, those impressions become irremovable. He wanted to call attention to a term which had brought mental anguish and physical torment to black people at home and abroad. He stated that it is detrimental to those who use it and to those whom it is directed. And he rounded out by saying that they respectfully request that this story of the little black sambo be removed from schools permanently. After Daniel's speech, of course, there was a debate, right? Still, even though it has been made so explicitly clear how black folks feel, they were like, mm, we still don't wanna do it, okay? And Edna was a part of this debate, of course, but she was repeatedly cut off and interrupted. And they even accused her of making political issues of racial issues as if the two aren't interconnected and interwoven. Superintendent Feimister said that banning the book would be book burning and censorship, bringing the community down a road that they won't be able to come back from. Okay. He said that sensitivity to the word Sambo is in the minds of the minority and not the majority, so it doesn't matter. He said the word doesn't mean anything bad to him, sir. You're white. Of course it wouldn't mean anything bad to you. Like, be so for real, please. Another trustee spoke up and said that his kids loved the story and never thought of it as prejudicial to any race. Who the hell cares? I mean, they're not gonna outwardly be like, yeah, this book makes me think that black people are stupid and dumb and I get to go bully black kids in my school and call them Sambo, but that's how prejudicial and racist ideals are implemented. They're not brought to you in a way where it's like, hey, this is racist. It's brought to you in a way that's easy for you to digest and then take it in as your own idea of what black people are, how they're represented, and then push that stereotype onto other people. Like, I don't know, these people really did not understand how racism works and it's so evident by these statements. Another, however, said that the book should be removed, but only from the specific schools where it was perceived to cause offense so all of the schools where black kids were. But they just wanted to remove it from Danny's school as a way to kind of pacify him and a way to dismiss and delegitimize the valid concern of all of the other parents who had come forth as well. The Committee of Negro Parents, they did their thing, honestly. And because they kept advocating for themselves and they had an opportunity to speak for themselves, speak their opinions without hesitation, by a vote of 14 to 2, the decision was made to remove the Little Black Sambo from all classrooms and school libraries in the Toronto, Ontario area. News of their decision spread very quickly. The public and many newspapers made their stance well known, even though nobody asked. 
the Toronto Star, the Toronto Telegram, and Canadian Negro were on the side of the Committee of Negro Parents. Rabbi Abraham L. Feinberg of the Holy Blossom Temple told his congregation that the book in public schools encouraged racial prejudice by creating a pattern of Negro minstrel show energy in the minds of white children while simultaneously bringing up a sense of persecution and emotional insecurity in colored children. Columnist Frank Timpain of the typically conservative Toronto Telegram actually spoke up in defense of the black parents who were trying to get this book banned and did so successfully, which keynote. If the super conservative people are on the side of black folks in a book ban and you're against it, that lets you know that you are on the wrong side of things, okay? Let's just put that out there. He spoke out and he stated that the book should have been banned long ago. He justified this by saying it's super easy for white people to claim black folks are being overly sensitive, but the fact is white people don't know what they're talking about, which period, because they aren't black. And he added that circulating the book in Toronto schools detracts from black folks' dignity, makes them feel otherized, and humiliates them, and that's wrong, which snaps for Frank because that was on point. And that was like a radical thing for him to do at this point in time. He received a lot of backlash for taking the stance that he did, but he didn't at all waver, like at all. He stood firm in his ideals. So someone actually asked him how he was qualified to say how black folks felt about the book. And he said that if the black community identifies for themselves that their children are harmed by the book, then that's good enough for him. Whereas the Winnipeg Free Press, the Milwaukee Journal, and the Globe and Mail were adamantly against the book ban, which no surprise with the Winnipeg Free Press from being 100% honest, but... Anyways, the Winnipeg Free Press said that the ban was amicable nonsense and an expert in children's stories, which what the hell is even that? told the Milwaukee Journal that minorities must have tolerance to must have tolerance to racism against their children, because when it's instilled, when racism is instilled in a child, they then grow up to be an adult perpetuating racist ideals. So they need to be tolerant to that for white people's entertainment. And they published that with their whole chest, okay? And the Globe and Mail actually printed an editorial which censored out the word black, which was clearly mocking the book ban. They also printed a cartoon which stated that the phony racial issues were simply communist ploys. So using political beliefs to dismiss the valid concerns and feelings of black folks. Cool. Columnist J.W. McCreese wrote in the Globe and Mail that colored people have to learn to live with their pigmentation. It ought to be easy for them to live with the name, especially when it's used affectionately, like in the book. Like, all you had to say was that you're ignorant. You didn't need to write all this. Just say that you're ignorant and keep it moving. Toronto's public library chief librarian, Jean Thompson, told Globe and Mail that the book was popular with black and white kids without any suggestion of them harboring derogatory feelings and said that it's a pity that this book is made to be the butt of an issue. Like, it's astounding how ignorant all these people were and how comfortable they were being loudly ignorant. Like, sometimes you just need to... Your lips. Like, you just need to just hold them together. Just... Just bite your tongue, it's not that hard. An editorial in the Hamilton Speculator said that unthinking trustees were talked into accepting a case of racial intolerance. It went on to say that, quote, we don't blame the Negro people, although we don't feel they could have thought out just what they were trying to accomplish. So while saying that the book shouldn't be banned, 
they are also simultaneously pushing the Sambo stereotype onto Black people, insinuating that they're dumb, they're naive, they didn't think it through, and so the onus and responsibility was on the white people who should have been actively monitoring the Black people. Okay, my girl, young Black, strong student, Julia Kirkwood, was literally sick of hearing all of the idiotic and negative responses to the ban, and so the Toronto Star published a letter on her behalf mid-February of 1956. She wrote that she doesn't understand how someone can comment on something they have never experienced, which that in itself is like all the chef's kisses for her. She then went on to say that she wonders how many white children have ever left a classroom after reading or having this book read to them being taunted by their classmates. She said she doubted if they could name a white child who this happened to, but she was sure that every black child who attended public school in Toronto or any school in Canada has had this experience. Due to Daniel's efforts, Toronto was the first of many schools to ban this book in 1956, like the first internationally, not just in Canada followed by New York in 1959, Nebraska in 1964, and then there's a huge gap, right? And then Alabama in 1971, all of the UK in 1972, Hamilton, Montreal, and New Brunswick also in 1972, and Dallas, Texas in 1972. In 2001, a year before Daniel passed away, he was awarded the African Canadian Lifetime Achievement Award, which well-deserved. So Paul went on to become a lawyer and Jane is now a teacher in the GTA and she prides herself on teaching the new generation about social justice and cares very deeply about carrying on her father's legacy. Jane said that she saw the impact her dad had on his community and he taught her to be proud of who she was, to stand up for her rights, the rights of others, to be a voice for others and to be self-sufficient. She believes that education is key. Jane says that she is surprised that the book is still for sale and she adds, obviously the story has some kind of appeal, but she wishes that they would just make the hero look real and give him a real name if they're going to continue to sell it. She also publicly has said that the book may be a classic, but it has and continues to hurt a lot of people. So we have now come to the part of the podcast where I give my thoughts, my opinions, my feelings, and this was actually a wild one to research. So I did a, in my History of Denny's video, I was researching about like the Sambo, the stereotype and all of those things. And I came across this book ban. And at first I was like, oh, okay, like it happened, you know, somewhere in America. I was kind of shocked to hear that it happened in Canada and that it took him literally over 10 years, 10 years to get it banned successfully because people were so adamantly against it. And so publicly adamantly against it and like calling him wrong and just belittling him and everybody else who spoke up. I think that this just goes is the true testament, though, of how racism kind of works in Canada, how it operates, how they make it seem like it's covert as if it's a you problem. It's your perception of things, but I'm not actually being racist while also upholding racist stereotypes and ideals and pushing them onto you. Right. Like that. The Hamilton newspaper that spoke out and said, Oh, well, it's not on black people. It's on the school board who passed this ban, right? And reinforcing those stereotypes. It may seem trivial, like, oh, well, it's just a book about a little boy. But a lot of the things that are within the book and the film itself, which you saw some of the film, you can just see the racist imagery in it and what that insinuates and what it articulates to kids, right? That like black kids are dirty or they're not well taken care of, they just get to go on these adventures, they're wild, they're animal-like, animalistic in, in nature, just all of the horrible things. And then the menstrual aspect to it, which also cannot be denied. 
Um, I don't think that this book is banned across Canada and you can still purchase it, which for me is a, a problem. Like, I just think about if all of the UK banned this book, why is this book available anywhere? But why is it available in Canada still? When Toronto, because of Danny, it was the first place to ban it. Like, it just seems ridiculous. But yeah, I think that this is a really interesting tidbit of history. I don't think it's talked about nearly enough, especially what Danny did for the community um, and also did for Black kids everywhere. So thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Girl You Haven't Heard, where it was Black History Week and we discussed Danny Brathwit's journey to get the Little Black Sambo banned from Toronto schools. So thank you so much for joining me and I will see you next week. While Simon, while Simon, simultaneously, oh, why can't I say this word? Oh, 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 oh,